Turn in your copy of the scriptures, if you would please, to the Psalms, Psalm 37. We're in the middle of our sermon series entitled, Holy Sex, Sexual Purity in a World Gone Mad. And oftentimes, uh, as has been said before, uh, the, the subject of human sexuality being spoken about in church seems to be something that is taboo, that the twain shall not meet, that we wouldn't talk about uh, sexuality and certainly sexual gratification, self-gratification, which is our topic for today, that that should not be named uh, in, a, in a church service. Uh, but that's really not what you find throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, oftentimes I find that church leaders, churches, ministries, organizations, authors tend to want to speak about sexuality in a way that is holier than God does. Uh, God God seems to be pretty blunt, pretty straightforward as you read his word, talking about sexuality, particularly talking about sexual sin, wanting us to understand the effects of it on our lives and on our society without even the most local of anesthetics. And God is not a God who says, I am not for pleasure. God, our God is not a God who says, I'm not for you enjoying this life at all. Of course, this world is not our home Okay, we are just a passing through. We are going on to a greater place. We're going on to a place that we just sang about, the sweet by and by that we will be in for eternity. All who love Jesus, all who have faith in him, all who trust in him for salvation, that is our sure and certain hope. Amen? So this world is not our home, but God doesn't say, yeah, well, just grovel through it. Just grovel through it because since this world isn't your home, just kind of make your way through it. You know, like, 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 like switching airplanes at a dirty, dingy airport or like at some bus terminal. It's like, look, you're just here for a reason. Just get on that bus and leave. There's nothing here to, uh, to amuse you. There's nothing here to satisfy your pleasure. You're not supposed to enjoy this life at all. That's not what God says in his word. Uh, we're not to make that the center of our life. In fact, God is all for pursuing pleasure as long as it's rooted in him. God is all for pursuing pleasure as long as it's rooted in him. Job 22 verses 25 and 26 says, Then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Psalm 21 verses 1 and 2 says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah, which means stop. Think about it. Just think about what we just read. If you read verse 2 apart from verse 1, uh, that's how you get to all the forms of false theology that we have today. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Clearly, God just exists to give me what I want, right? King's kids ride first class. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. It's mine. I have faith. I can claim it. It's going to be mine. God wants to give me all of my heart's desires. Look at your neighbor and say, no, he doesn't. Because he doesn't. That's not what the text says. If you look at the first verse, it says, Oh, Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. It's in the Lord's strength that the king rejoices. He's rejoicing in salvation. And then it says, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Why? Because his heart's been changed. Psalm 37, which I asked you to turn to. Psalm 37, look at verses 3 and 4. See, God's not a party pooper. He's not a buzzkill. You can't find that in the text of Scripture. There's nothing that's going to be boring about heaven. God's word says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I am fully convinced. 
I am fully convinced that everything I expect about heaven is way off. Like way off because my reference point that I can see things and picture things in my mind is all from a fallen world. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I think I'm going to, and it's like God's up in heaven as I talk about like what I think heaven's going to be. He's like, oh yeah, whoa, yeah, yeah, it'll be, yeah, right, just like that. You know, Jesus said his right hand nudge, look at this, watch what he thinks it's going to be like. I don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know what it's going to be like because we can't even, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. It's, we, we have no category for it. For God has prepared for those that love him. But here and now in this life, God is not anti-pleasure either. We're told in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17 that it's God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And look at Psalm 37 verses 3 and following. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Look, God wants to give me the desires of my heart. It says so right there. Well, look, calm, just calm down. Calm down. Look at the text. Delight yourself also in the Lord. Oh, also. That sounds like it's in, like in addition to. Look at verse 1. Uh, excuse me, verse 3, the, the, the verse before it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. See, God's not just saying, hey, guess what? Just put up and shut up. No, trust in me. Come to me for faith. Come to me for salvation. Come to me. I will give you rest. I'll give you hope. I'll give you eternal life. And guess what? Enjoy the ride. Enjoy me. Delight in me is what God says. He doesn't say, come to me. Good. Now that you come to me, now get. He's our father. He's a daddy. He loves his children. Delight in me, he says. He wants us to delight in him, enjoy him, love him. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And as we do that, as God takes his place on the throne of our, of our minds, of our hearts, our desires change, right? Our desires change. Our affections change. The very things we take pleasure in change. Not everything instantly. Not everything in totality. But God begins a work of progressive sanctification in our lives, making us more like him and less like ourselves. And it's a journey. It's not a sprint. It's a journey. It lasts a lifetime. As God continues to draw us closer to himself, as God continues to sanctify us, as God continues to renew our minds as we put off the old and put on the new, as we're told in Ephesians 4, 22 and following. All of us whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 29. And as Christians, our desire should be to glorify God with our bodies. It should be to glorify God with our entire lives. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31 says, uh, whatever you, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that we're doing, we should be doing to the glory of God. And God who created sex, God who created marriage, is not silence as to the purposes of sex between a husband and wife. Unlike other things God has created, men and women are created in what? The image of God. Right? We're image bearers of very God. And as such, our lives are to reflect the glory of God. 
just last weekend, eight days ago, I had the privilege of, uh, I was in New York City, I was preaching a wedding for a former student of mine. And, and when I preach a wedding, what I try to do, I try my very best to do and pray that God would use me to do, is to draw people's attention to the pictures. Not the pictures that are being taken by all the paparazzi around the room, but to the pictures that a wedding creates. To the pictures that, see, something's happening there that God wants to depict something even greater. See, as image bearers of God created to reflect His glory, the union of a man and woman in marriage, a husband and wife, is created to reflect the union of Christ and the church. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all. I don't think it's in the outline. Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage and the marriage bed. Marriage and the marriage bed. Marriage and sex. It's, it's in a sense, it's, it's, it's both or neither. Does that, does that make sense? It's both or neither. God did not create sex to be enjoyed outside of marriage. Nor did he create the pleasures associated with sex to be enjoyed outside of marriage. Apart from our spouses. And God did not create marriage to be enjoyed without sexuality in the vast majority of cases. The two go together. And so when discussing our topic for today, we need to look to the scriptures, of course, but to see what marriage is to depict and build upon that foundation as we discuss sexual pleasure and self-gratification. You see, since sex is supposed to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage, let's start by looking at marriage. Let's start from the bottom and build our way up. Sound good? Good, let's do that. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 31. Ephesians 5. Verse 31 says, for this reason, well, if it's going to say for this reason, we might as well read what's before it so we see the reason. Let's back up to verse uh, 25. Let me build our way up to that. Ephesians 5 verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of of his bones. Look at that verse again. We are members of his body. We'll come back to that concept a little later. Verse 31 says, For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, Paul says, I'm going to admit this, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Look at the text. Two become one. Christ and the church. Marriage is about two becoming one. Uh, The picture God draws for us is likened to the relationship Christ has with the church. God designed marriage to depict the oneness Christ has with the church, not himself. Do do, do you see that? It's Christ and the church, 
husband, wife, Christ, and the church. The oneness that we have with our spouses. God designed marriage to depict the oneness Christ has with the redeemed, with his bride, not with himself. The two become one. Christ is the bridegroom and we are his bride. Oneness with Christ. I want to show you elsewhere in Scripture where you can see this illustrated maybe a little more fully. And we'll walk through that text together. Uh, Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, uh, beginning in verse twelve. God's word says, "All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any." Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a a harlot, a prostitute? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now look at verse 13. Look back at verse 13. It says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the, what? Lord. For the Lord. Continue reading in verses 15 and following. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? See, in verses 12 through 14, what we see is that our bodies are not for sexual immorality, not given to us to pursue our own sexual desires, our own uh, idolatrous seeking of pleasure and satisfaction, but for the Lord. Our bodies are for the Lord. Now, closely related to that, look at verse 15 and following. Do you not know that your members are of Christ? Christ. See, we're not only for the Lord, but we are of the Lord. Our bodies are not only for God's use, they're not only for Christ, but we are of Christ. We are one with Him. The church, the redeemed, the saved make up the body of Christ. You and I are members of the body of Christ. Not members like a, of a club or an organization, but, but members, 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 body parts. Body parts. We are members of the body of Christ. We are, we are all parts. That, that's the picture Paul is creating for us there. That's what he means when he says we're part of the body of Christ. We each are members, body parts, of the body of Christ. Having said that, Paul asks and answers the question if we should be uniting the body parts of Jesus Christ with a prostitute. And like I said before, all throughout the scriptures, God speaks to us regarding sexual sin and idolatry with vivid 
pictures, vivid pictures. He, he doesn't seek to speak in a sanitized way. If time allowed, I'd take you through the Old Testament to show you some of the most vivid word pictures God puts on display to show the wickedness of our hearts when it comes to idolatry. He does not mince words. He does not, as you read through scriptures, God wants you to get the picture. God wants us to be completely sickened by not just sexual immorality, but by the depravity of our own hearts apart from the grace of God. God speaks clearly. God speaks loudly. So Paul here says, all right, all right, hey, hey, picture it, right? We're all parts of a body, right? We're all part of the body of Christ, right? You're a part, you're a body part, you're a body part, you're a body part, I'm a body part. Tell me this, do you think God wants us to be uniting our body parts with with, with a prostitute? Think God wants that one flesh you picture it. And it's like, oh, that's gross. Did he say that? I gotta go. Did he did he say that? You know, one of those times where you get embarrassed for someone else. <laughs> he, he's, is that what he wants us to do? Unite the parts of God's body with a with, with, with a prostitute? Become one with her? Huh. And before we have a chance to answer, he answers for us, right? Certainly not. Verse 15. And look at verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, a whore, a prostitute, is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Sex is an act that shows oneness. Here Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. The two shall become one flesh. Remember, both marriage and sexual intercourse are pictures of the oneness believers enjoy with Christ. Sex between a husband and wife is when the one flesh union is most fully manifested. I mean, like, can I say this? Picture it. It it, it really is. Like, it's when the one flesh union is most fully manifested. The two become one. And here God says, do we we unite? Do, Do we join Do we become one with? Do we have that very act with the body parts of Christ with a prostitute? Because when you do that, the scriptures say, you become one with her. One with him. Then look at verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord in one spirit... Excuse me. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Does it make you feel a little like awkward? Hey, try being me right about now. But, but does, it, does it make you feel a little awkward to be talking about the oneness that we experience with, with, in, in sexuality with our husbands and wives and then comparing that to the oneness we have with, with Christ? If it does, that's because we are so used to the sexual immorality and the perverted ways that we view sexuality in our culture, that when we read something like this, we're like, wait a second. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. Oneness with Christ and oneness with my wife and oneness with the prostitute. Ah, that's, ah, I'm going to, how about them Oilers? I mean, that's just not, it's just, it's not something we're used to associating together. But come back to the text of Scripture. Come back to the text of Scripture. Come back to truth. Sexual intercourse. Two becoming one is meant to depict the oneness that we, the body of Christ, have with God. Marriage, a relationship between husband and wife, depicting the relationship we have with Christ. Both are relationships where two become one. 
Therefore, that which brings about oneness in these relationships is created for two becoming one, not one becoming one. You see, God designed marriage and sexuality and sexual pleasure to, to depict the oneness and the relationship that Christ has with the church, not the church with the church or Christ with Christ. It's two becoming one. So we bring this up now to talk about self-gratification. If uh, sex and sexuality and sexual pleasure is something that's to be enjoyed, fully enjoyed between husband and wife within the context of marriage, any sexual pleasure that I enjoy apart from the context of marriage distorts the picture. Do do, do you see that? It distorts the picture. Self-gratification, bringing about sexual pleasure for oneself... There's no picture of that in Scripture in a God-glorifying way. It totally distorts the picture of oneness between us and Christ and between us and our spouses. It it takes something that God created to depict oneness with Him and to be enjoyed as two become one flesh in marriage and totally distorts the picture. Further, as we continue reading in 1 Corinthians 7, according to the Bible, sexual pleasure is is something we're supposed to give our spouses. Let me say that again to make sure I'm clear. Sexual pleasure is something we're supposed to give our spouses, not to ourselves. You say, what? Like that. What? I don't know where that came from. Wait a second. Once I'm married, and the marriage bed is undefiled, I thought that's kind of like when I've arrived, Pastor. Like, that's like the goal is get there and... You know, wait while I'm single, and then once I'm married, I can fully pursue the pleasure that I've waited for and that I've been longing for. Well, that's, that's true in part. But sexual pleasure is to, is to be enjoyed in marriage. But listen to me. Look at the text. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. It's to be given. Watch. Verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is, I don't know why it's been so, so sanitized in our Bibles, but it's, uh, it's, it's, Hebrew. it's a Jewish euphemism that he's talking about in the Greek that says it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. That's what he says. It's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Not in general, not in general, but a single man. It is good for a single man not to have sex with a woman. How many of you would agree with that? Just a quick show of hands. Good for a single man not to have sex with a woman. Let me just try that again. Because, yeah, right, let's try that again. How many of you agree with the Word of God? Good, okay. A little concerning, just a little concerning. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So it's, it's, it's good for... The single man not to have sex with the woman. The single woman not to have sex with a man. But because of sexual immorality, if those drives are driving them, uh, then it's good for you to get married. It's good for you, to, for you to satisfy those desires within the context that God created, which is marriage. Now look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Let the husband render to himself... No. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her... Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. Sexual pleasure in marriage? Yes, absolutely. But I'm not to pursue it for myself. I'm to give it to her. And she's, continue reading that verse, she's to give it to me. Does, does, does that make sense? 
sexual pleasure within marriage. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. God's for sexual affection, sexual pleasure. God's for full appreciation of one another within the context of marriage. But it's not about me, watch this, it's not about me making love to my wife for me. Does that make sense? It's me making love to my wife for her. I'm rendering the affection that is due her. She is rendering the affection that is due me. If we are both looking in the right direction in our sexuality, who's left uncovered? It's when I'm, oh, it's good. It's, it's, it's when, I mean, it, it, human sexuality is, is good. It's glorious. But here's where, here's where it gets tripped up. It's when Sarah is in, this is so awkward. Here I go. It's when Sarah is making love to me, rendering the affection to me, and I'm rendering the affection to myself. Because then no one's looking out for her. Do you see that? Self-gratification. Self-gratification can still happen within the context of a marriage. It's when my mind is focused on me. I'm in it for me. My pleasures, my needs, my wants, my desires. Sarah's focused on me. I'm focused on me. Nobody's focused on my wife. I'm focused on my wife. My wife is focused on herself. Nobody's focused on me. I render the affection that's due her. She renders the affection that's due me. Yay. That's how God created it to be. But according to the Bible, sexual pleasure is something to enjoy. It's something that we're to fully enjoy in the context of marriage. I would go so far as to say that in in many cases, it's a sin not to. But it's not supposed to be me looking for it for me. I'm supposed to have a desire to please my wife within the confines of marriage and our sexuality, and she's supposed to have the desire to please me, and then we're covered. Sexual pleasure is something we're supposed to give to our spouses, not to ourselves. So even in marriage, self-gratification, it should never be a problem. It, It should never be something that I would seek to for myself. Contrary to popular belief, gratification is not the is not the problem here. It's self. God's all for pleasure. God created sex. He created it to be enjoyed. Gratification in marriage, uh, uh, gratification in sex is not the issue. It's the self. So yeah, but I've got to look out for, I mean, I've, I need to stay satisfied and stay fulfilled. It's marriage. I've got to look, it's, it's my body. Eh, well, read on. Verse 4 says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Bible hates women. Keep reading. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. See, contrary to popular belief, you don't have rights to your body. You're not supposed to look out for your body. You belong to God and your spouse. Say, yeah, but what if I'm not married? Then I belong to me, right? Nope. Back up, 1 Corinthians 6. We read that, uh, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are what? Not your own. You were bought at a price. You have rights to your own body, rights to pursue your own pleasure. God will look out for number one. We don't see that in the text of Scripture. We were bought at a price. 
The Bible has nothing to say about self-gratification in an honoring, redeeming way. But tons to say about spouse gratification and in so doing, God glorification. Do do, do you see that? There could still be self-gratification going on within the confines of marriage in a marriage bed. Is my goal, is my goal in making love to my wife to render the affection that is due her or am I really in this for, for me? There's something I want. There's something I want right now. And, and I, I seek to please myself in this. That's a major shift in mindset. And speaking from personal experience, it's a major shift in mindset that really changed our marriage and this aspect of our marriage. When we looked at this aspect of our relationship as an opportunity to die to self, to, to love the other person, that my coming to the realization that my goal is to please her and glorify God in so doing. Her goal is to please me. Mind blown. Back to the notes. Turn back. We've quoted it enough. Uh, two become one. Two become one. Well, it's from Genesis 2. We'd be remiss to not look at it in the original context. Turn back uh, all the way to Genesis 2. Make the right side of your Bible a lot heavier than the left. Genesis 2. Now listen. As you're turning, let me tell you something about Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 is the only part of redemptive history that can rightfully be referred to as the good old days. Why? Because in Genesis 3, we have what? The the fall. Everything's changed and for the worse as a result of the fall. And God promises a savior, promises a redeemer, promises to love his people. But Genesis 1 and 2, the good old days. You want to know how God intended things to be? Look at Genesis 1 and 2. With that in mind, let's look at Genesis chapter 2 and uh, let's look at verse 15. 15 and following. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Have at it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God gave this commandment to whom? The man. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now this is not God looking down at all of creation and saying, I knew I forgot something. Not at all. He's just saying, and guess what? Here I am. Genesis 2 is kind of like a detailed commentary of the sixth day of creation. So he's like, guess what? Okay, I've made this, I've made this, I've made this, and it's not good for me to leave man alone, so I'm going to make a helper comparable to him. And that's what he does. I will make a helper comparable to him. Verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, took Adam's ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this, (laughs) you, this is now bone of my bones and and 
flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So you see that verse 24? That's what we've been quoting a couple of different times in the New Testament. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his flesh. Excuse me. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But look what's at the beginning of that sentence in verse 24. Therefore. When we see the word therefore, we need to see what it's there for. So we look back at the preceding verses. We look back at the account that we just read as to how the two had become one. What did God do leading up to that? You know, in verse 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's not Adam saying, hear ye, hear ye. You are not like an armadillo or a cow or a bird or a squirrel. You are different. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's not just stating a fact. In the original Hebrew, he's celebrating. He's celebrating the wife that God had brought to him. He's saying, at last, at last, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She's like me. We're we're alike. At last. Now, oftentimes, jokes are made about how Eve must have looked or how Adam must have looked because this is all pre-fall and how unbelievably attractive and gorgeous they must have been because it was before the fall and before sickness and death entered into the world and, you know, bags under the eyes and all that other stuff. And there's an element of truth to that, okay? I'm sure they were easy on the eyes. But I think we missed something important. I think we missed something important. See, God, when, when Adam looked at the woman that God, didn't, that, that God created for him, He didn't look at her and say, whoa, man, and that's how we named her woman. That's not, that's not exactly how it happened. He didn't look at her and was so taken aback by her, her beauty and so taken aback by how hot she was that he then celebrates. In, in fact, uh, look at the text and tell me what they look like. Don't look too long. It's a trick question. We're running out of time. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. Tell me, it does not say what they look like. You say, well, that's not like God. That's not like the word of God to, to bring up those, those, those details about what they look like. That's not the point. You want to bet? Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told what people look like. Rebecca was beautiful, Genesis 24, 16. Uh, Genesis 29, 17 says, Leah had nice eyes, but Rachel was the whole package. Don't even get me started on Song of Solomon. <laughs> okay, there are plenty of times, plenty of times throughout the text of Scripture where God goes into detail about what people look like. So it's not unlike God to do that. But not here. What I say Genesis 1 and 2, we could refer to as the good old days. This is how God intended for it to be. Eve, watch this. Eve was Adam's standard of beauty. You see that? Eve was Adam's standard for beauty. Adam didn't compare Eve to an outside standard of beauty. Well, that's because he couldn't. No, it's because he didn't have sin in his heart. He didn't have covetousness. And he wasn't comparing and rating women and saying, that one. Maybe I could put it this way. Adam didn't find Eve beautiful and make her his wife. Adam found Eve beautiful because she was his wife. It's, it's pre-fall, right? It's not, yeah, that one, 
Ah, that one's just okay. This one. Woo! And, and hypothetically speaking, let's say, you say, well, she's the only one. Well, let's say there were a ton more. Let's say God had created other men and other women. Who would he have been focused on? One, his wife. Uh, look at the verse preceding that. Look at verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he what? Brought her to him, right? Brought her to the man. Didn't just say, all right, I'm done. He'll wake up soon. He'll come too. Give him a kick. All right, good. All right, woo! And hightail it out of there. He said, look, hey, Adam, Adam, I'm done. And Adam says, wow, at last, I have a wife. I have a wife. Here's how we see how God created it to be. That for every man, his standard of beauty would simply and solely be his wife. For every woman, that her standard of beauty and what she's attracted to would be the husband that God brought to her. We don't live in Genesis 1 and 2. We live in Genesis 3 and beyond. And this is not the good old days. Since the fall of man, our world has created a new standard of beauty that we see all too often in different forms of media and particularly in pornography. And it's only become worse and it's only becoming more commonplace and it's only becoming more accessible. Some of you are old enough to remember what I'm about to say. In the 1950s, no normal, everyday stores carried soft pornography. You didn't just walk into a guest at just a normal, everyday store and see the same kinds of smut and filth that we see on magazine racks right next to regular magazines. In the 1960s, Playboy was made available behind the counter. In the 1970s, Penthouse made it next to Playboy on the shelf. In the 1980s and 90s, pornography becomes available on the magazine rack for anyone to pick up and flip through, regardless of age. And now, in the 21st century, it makes it literally right into our hands, right into our pockets. Gone are the days for the person who wanted to enjoy, uh, to, 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 to please himself over pornography... That he had to worry about who was going to see him as he bought this from a store and got home really fast. He'd be looking at it at any time. What's that person sitting across from you at a Starbucks looking at? I don't know. And they don't know what you're looking at. But it's accessible and it's there. The average age of someone's first exposure to internet pornography is 11. The largest group of viewers of internet pornography are children ages 12 through 17. Chances are if a middle school boy has a girlfriend and a cell phone, more times than not, he has a nude shot of his middle school girlfriend on his cell phone. The pornography industry, it is an industry, grosses more revenue than top technology companies. I mean like companies like Apple, Google, eBay, Netflix, Yahoo, Microsoft, and Amazon. Combined. Combined. 
Approximately 40 million people, 40 million people in the United States are sexually involved with the Internet. And while most people think this is like a guy thing and it's predominantly males, one in six women admits to being sexually involved with the Internet. How did I just word that? One in six women admits. So if these numbers are off, they're low. You you, you know that, right? Well, you don't know. You can't trust these surveys. You're right. You can't. They're probably worse. Child pornography in and of itself generates three billion, ba-ba-ba-billion with a B, three billion dollars annually. And viewing pornography brings about devastating results to people's minds and hearts, destroying families and ministries above and beyond what anyone ever imagined possible, and no one started out intending to do it. And everyone said, that's them, but not me. And it happens because it redefines beauty and sets a standard that can never be met because it is all, it's all a facade. Let me see if this video can help illustrate my point. Does that put up the two side by side? Does the woman on the right exist? Is she real? Now, this is not what I would categorize as pornography, but this shows you what goes on in the beauty industry, much less in the porn industry, where the woman on the left, who is beautiful in her own self and an image bearer of, made in the image of God, is not viewed as beautiful because the goal is to become the woman on the right. So the guy is looking at the woman on the left and says, no, that's, that's not beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm looking for this on the right. That's a 10. That's what I'm going for. But in reality, she doesn't exist. And, and the girl looks in the mirror and realizes she doesn't look like the woman on the right. Why? Because she doesn't exist. And her goal is to get there. And she does all sorts of horrible, terrible things and has a terrible self-image and sticks her finger down her throat and distorts her whole image of beauty so that she can achieve what that looks like when in reality, once again, in case you missed it, that doesn't exist. And if that's the truth, just, just, just for the, the, the health care, health, health and beauty industry, 
How much more is that true when it comes to internet pornography? Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. And always be, love this word, always be enraptured with her love. This doesn't help that. Do you understand? This doesn't help that. Can't be enraptured with her love when you're totally filling your mind with people that don't really exist. And then you come back to reality. Your beautiful wife that God made and what? Brought to you. And you don't say, at last. You say, that's it? Adam's standard of beauty was his wife. Our standard of beauty tends to be this. And friends, let me connect the dots. Historically, statistically, do you know what parallels the internet going mainstream? Like, I don't know, but when I was, when I was younger, like in high school, we didn't have high-speed internet. It was like... Do you remember that? How many of you remember that? Welcome. And ours was usually this. Welcome, goodbye. It's like, ah! Eight times I've tried to get on. But as high-speed internet became more mainstream, and as it entered into jobs, workplaces, and into homes, late 90s, first part of the turn of the century, into the 21st century, do you know what parallels that? A need for Viagra. Yeah, feel, feel awkward. Three words for you to consider. Supply and demand. It's no coincidence that, that men are all of a sudden, by the millions, experiencing a dysfunction of sorts, unable to rejoice in the wife of his youth when he's filled his mind with images of someone else that doesn't exist. And when he comes back to reality, he's not excited to be there. He can't obey scriptures as a loving deer and a graceful doe, letting his wife's breasts satisfy him at all times when he's got the breasts of someone else on his mind who doesn't exist. And it's like, it's like you're, you're, you're dying of thirst. You're, you're dying of thirst and all of a sudden you show up and you see this huge body of water, gigantic body of water, and you think, oh, this is great. This is going to quench my thirst and it's never going to run out because I can come back to it time and time and time and time again. And then you realize that it's an ocean. And because it's an ocean, it's salt water. And because it's salt water, not only does it not quench your thirst, but it makes you more thirsty. And not only does it make you more thirsty, but you know what happens if you constantly drink salt water? You die. But it appears so pleasing. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 6, flip back to 1 Corinthians 6. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6, God's word separates sexual sins, not in seriousness. They don't get judged more. I don't think you can prove from the text that they get judged more seriously. But just in the difficulty that we as men and women have to wrestle with, he separates them. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. And verse 18, flee sexual immorality. It's not a word we use a lot, flee. When I want my kids to run, I don't say, come flee. 
flee before me. We, we don't use that word a lot. That's the same Greek word. It's used constantly throughout Scripture. Same Greek word used in Acts chapter 27. Paul's being shipwrecked, right, on his way to Rome. And the sailors are trying to flee the sinking ship. Why? For fear of what? Death. Flee sexual immorality. Run for your life from sexual immorality. Why? Now look at this. Every sin, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins what? Against his own body. There's something different here. Paul says this is different. Whole new ball game. It's against your own body. Men and women. It's against your own body. And it's so quickly to really come full circle. Look back at 1 Corinthians 6 and look up uh, to verse 12. Where he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under what? The power of any. I will be mastered by none of them. But it's this big ocean. I can take a dip anytime I want. You get so used to taking a dip in the ocean that you go back and you go back and you go back and you go back and you drink and you drink and you drink and you drink and you drink. And Proverbs 27, 20 proves true. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. James 1, 15, desire is conceived that gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And because we objectify people, uh, we don't view them as God would have us view them. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a what? A father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. With all what? Purity. Hey, look at each other. Your family. Your family. But if I've constantly been looking uh, at images of people in order to please myself in order to gratify myself, and I look at those images over and over and over again, I don't look at that person as family. I look at them as an object, an object. And when I objectify people, it's difficult for you to objectify one person here and then look over here as somebody else is the image and glory of God. This is an object. This is my sister in the Lord. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Furthermore, Speaking of objects, pornography contributes to worldwide human trafficking of children and women because it creates a demand for a constant supply. You say, that probably a bit of a stretch. That can't be true. They seem happy in the videos. Seem happy in the pictures, right? Got a wink, a little grin. Surely they must be enjoying themselves. I mean, why would they be doing this? You write this, you may want to write this down. Not everything you see on a screen is real. Mind blown, I know. They're actors. Let me just take you through a little hypothetical situation. Because it's true that the vast majority of girls in pornography and prostitution were recruited or coerced into the industry. Nobody majored in it in college. Girl in the state of Kentucky. Let's take it right here. Let's not go a far off land. Let's take it right here to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. 
uh, does what is commonly called an ages out of the foster care system. So she was in the foster care system. She was never adopted. It happens all the time. And she ages out. So the foster care system is only going to take care of kids until they are adults. So at 18, you age out. There's, they're not going to provide for your needs just because nobody came along and adopted you. So she ages out. And the foster family that's been caring for her hasn't adopted for her, but now the government's not going to give that family any more money. So... <laughs> So now she's, she ages out. Little statistic, 80%. Here in Kentucky, 80%, 80% of the girls who age out of the foster system are pregnant within two years. So she has needs, like food and shelter and all. And someone comes along and offers her just the, the full package. Pay, benefits, training. Usually it involves studying abroad travel, provide your travel documents for you, not a big deal, it's fine, promises them the world. Well, I've got, I mean, yeah, it sounds like a good deal. I think I could do that. Whatever it is, I mean, you name it, it could be anything. It's a bogus recruitment. Yeah, I think I could do that. Okay, just come with us and do this. And then 90% of the times when something like that happens, they get to the place and the job doesn't exist at all. And I know by the time they get around to your phone screen, they are smiling. But they're not happy. I could make you smile in a way that's not happy. You could make me smile in a way that's not happy. You could force me to do a lot of things. I know they appear willing, but they are not. They're playing a role. A role. They're doing what they're told to do by people who only want Money, and will use them and abuse them until they get what they want, which is money, and all too often leave them for dead afterward because there's a constant supply. Why am I talking about this? Is this just a hobby horse of mine? Am I doing the whole social gospel thing? No, no, I will, I will most definitely bring it full circle for you. Three words, supply and demand. There's all this talk about what we're going to do with human trafficking in the sex industry and how we can stand up to this and form this. And, I'm not, and I, 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 I hope there's something we can do. It, it's, it's terribly sad. Want to boycott something? Why don't you boycott pornography? Let's eliminate the need, the need for that supply. Because if there was no demand, there would be no supply. This is economics. Supply and demand. What is it driven by? Most people think money, but that's not true. It's idolatry. It's self-gratification. If, if people like you and me, if, if human beings didn't consume it, didn't like it, didn't go after it, there'd be no demand for it. Go buy your latest favorite music album on an 8-track. There's no demand for it. People spend time and money for self-gratification, self-pleasure, lying prostrate at the altar of self-gratification and pleasure, and it's a gut punch to a marriage and a drop kick to a family and a minefield to a ministry, and all of this, all of this, because we choose to walk our own way, do our own thing, love our own self instead of trust in and delight in the Lord, knowing he'll always give us the desires of our hearts having come to him. I want to call our worship team to the stage. Now, if you are here, well, you are. This just occurred to me. 
If you are not a Christian, by that I mean if you, if you don't love Jesus, you might like Him, you might be interested in Him, but you're not, a, you're not a follower of the Lord, you're not a believer, and you hear this message and you say, I've got to, I've got to kick this. I've got, to, I've got to get out of this idolatrous way of living. I've got to stop contributing to human trafficking. I've got to stop creating a demand for that supply. I've got to stop uh, ruining my mind. I've got to stop drinking out of salt water when it's just going to make me more thirsty and eventually kill me. Listen to me. You can stop viewing internet pornography today as a non-Christian and burn in hell for all eternity. Do you, do you understand that? I don't want you to be distracted by the issue. You have a greater need, and your need is to be saved. Your need is to be saved. You need a savior. Uh, what this has called to your attention is not a sexual dissatisfaction in your life, but a God dissatisfaction in your life. And because you're not a worshiper of the Lord, you worship at the altar of sexual idolatry or worship at the altar of something else. It really doesn't matter if it's not Jesus Christ. There's no hope. There's no help. There's no, there, there, there is no salvation. So I don't want to preach good deeds to people who need a good God first. Does, does, does that make sense? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can understand that you are a sinner, hell-bound, hell-deserving in thought, word, and deed, and that God sent his only son to die on a bloody cross for sinners like you and like me so that sinners like you and like me could be saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is most important. The gospel is of first importance. After that, there's a trickle-down effect. Okay, where God grows and changes you to become more like Christ. But maybe you're, maybe you're here and you say, I am a Christian, I love the Lord, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but I am enslaved. I'm enslaved. I go back to this ocean all the time. There is hope for you. I will quote Steve Barnett and say that the first step to getting better is to stop getting worse. And I will say at some point, I would recommend yesterday, at some point, you must say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm stopping now. I'm not cutting back. I'm cutting out. Because this is poison. It's not sugar. Eh, too much sugar is probably not good. It's poison. We cut out. We don't cut back. But then as I said in my sermon two weeks ago, by God's grace, he has placed you in a church that doesn't just say, this is the truth. Now get. Go on now. Shape up or ship out. We would love, love to come alongside you. Not as people who are perfect, but as people who have been redeemed. And come alongside you and point you to the hope and help that can be found in Jesus Christ. In Christ, the word made flesh. And show you how to apply these truths to your life. So that you don't have to be a slave to sin. You don't have to be a slave to self-gratification. You don't have to be a slave and be mastered by anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know, I know for a fact that so many times I speak, especially when I work with younger people, there's just this assumption that there's always going to be some presence of it in my life. I mean, maybe it won't be a lot, but there'll always be a little because I can't kick it. Friend, don't believe the lie. Don't buy the lie. It, ha- it doesn't have to have any presence in your life. God can redeem, God's redeemed you from hell and you don't think he can redeem you from a habit? 
please, but don't give up on Christ. Don't assume that this is the way it has to be. And right now, you are in a precious time, if that's you, because the word that I've just preached is kind of like, kind of like a fly, right? Just buzzes around for a minute. But if you swat at it long enough, listen to me, it'll be gone. And if God is working on your heart right now, and you're halfway in between, whether you're a guy or a girl, young or old, married or single, and you're like, I really should get help. No, that's ridiculous. No, I really need to stop. The, no, it's fine. I could probably kick it on my own. I re- no, I, it's fine. Last night was the, was the, was the end. I re- oh, would you harden not your heart? What a special, precious time this is where God is working on you, working on you. Don't. It's fine. I'm fine. This is a precious time, friend, for repentance and for growth and for change for you. Don't bat it away. Embrace it. Embrace it. Lean into it. Lean into what the Lord is doing in your life right now. Father in heaven, as you've called us back to your truth, would you remind us of our identity in you, that we are, Lord, we're better than con- We are more than conquerors because of who we are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that nothing can separate us from your love, And we stand here before you today saying we shall be mastered by nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there are some among us who need to make that a reality, practically speaking. Oh, God of grace. God in heaven, would you work in their hearts? Would you work in their lives to break free, not of their own volition, Lord, we can't. We can't shake free of the shackles that so easily weigh us down, but we know that by your grace we can be saved certainly from hell and definitely from a habit. But we need help. Lord, would you lay it upon the hearts of your people to come to you for help in this their time of need? Lord, would you call people to your side who know you not? Lord, would lost be saved? Would people realize for the first time even now they're not a goat, they're a sheep? And Lord, would you enable us to walk in purity, not for the sake of purity, not even for the sake of our marriages, but for your name's sake, that we might bring you glory and honor and praise. We love you and we need you. Work in our hearts in a special way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.